I remember thinking, is this actually going to work? Am I doing it wrong? Like, did I set a, up a business model that's never going to get there? I'm going to have to keep working these 16-hour days, like seven days a week. Um, but so I had that stress, but also like, you know, whether it's a thrill or just the survival, adrenaline, whatever it was. I mean, like I looked up in three and a half years have gone by and I, I did enjoy it, even though it was stressful. Um, and it may have been my favorite part of the last 14 years. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Sweet Sun Tzu, the art of war. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Welcome to another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast. Today, I have with me Duke Dodson. Duke, how you doing? Good. I'm good, Jordan. How are you? Appreciate you coming on the show, brother. Thank you for having me. It's been a hot minute since we were able to collab. I've had you on the podcast once before. Yep. You and I have seen each other on the road. There hasn't been much of a road the last <laughs> couple of years. Not lately, yeah. But we're finding ourselves uh, back here. So, man, what's uh, what's the latest? What's What's been new in your world over the last couple of years? Um, I guess like the biggest thing uh, for me personally is I've uh, been spending more of my time uh, on the development side, real estate development side. So I've hired a COO three years ago and pulled myself out of the weeds of the management company. I'm still, you know, one foot, in, I'm still kind of overseeing both. But uh, personally, I've delegated a lot of tasks within property management to my COO, so I can spend more time on the development side. Um, property manager-wise, is good. It's growing. Um, we had about a stretch for about a year or so with no acquisitions, but we have three acquisitions in the hopper now, all closing within like 60 days. So property management folks are very, very busy getting those closed and integrated. Um, and then development side, we have a couple of projects going on, a couple of projects starting next year. So pretty excited about that. Do you just do acquisitions in your local market? So we, um, no. So we, uh, the companies we're buying now are in um, Northern Virginia, uh, Petersburg, which is just south of Richmond. It's technically the same market. And um, Williamsburg, which is an hour east of us. and then, Like historical Williamsburg? Yeah, correct. Yeah, Colonial Williamsburg, yep. And then we bought one HOA company last year in Sarasota, Florida. So our kind of, our plan, because, you know, we're, we're five divisions. We're single-fam, multi-fam, tweener, which is like small apartment, true multi-fam and commercial. Um, all that's headquartered in Richmond, and our plan is to kind of grow all of it from Virginia to Florida and just kind of connect the dots in between. Uh, markets of 750,000 people and above between Virginia and Florida is kind of our those markets are in place. Take over the Eastern seaboard. Yeah. Southeast is kind of like, that's where I like always, you know, lived and tr traveled in and those are the markets I know. And, you know, similar state laws, similar, uh, everything. Uh, when you go North, things change a little bit. You go out West, things change a little bit. And so, um, you never know things, you know, the plan can always change, but that's the plan for now. And what is the size of those divisions in terms of door counter square footage respectively? Yeah. So single fam is about 2000 units, uh, uh, multifam is about 2000. Um, our tweener again, tweener is for us. It's like six to 60 units, like small multifamily properties. We've carved that out as a separate division that manages about a thousand, 1100 units. Um, commercial is about 2 million, actually about closer to two and a half million square feet now. And then, um, uh, HOA with the acquisitions we're doing by January, we will be at about, um, uh, about 15,000 doors on the HOA side. And then single fam at that point would be about 2,400 at that time. Now, Duke, there's always this dichotomy between being opportunistic versus strategic. And I mm -hmm. think for most of us, we could admit there's a mix of the two. Right. For you getting into these multiple divisions and then getting into development, was mm -hmm. that all part of a master plan? Was <laughs> it fall from one thing to the next? How did that come to be? Yeah, I'd say it's a little bit of both. I would say um, before we started recording, we were talking about having like the, the like the chase the shiny ball complex as an entrepreneur. And I think getting into single fam, we focused on just that at first. And once we started growing that, started meeting investors who had say 10 houses and two small apartment buildings. And I found those people interesting, what they were doing was interesting. So I wanted to learn to do small multifam so I could keep those clients in my universe and just watch what they do. And um, and then the, some of those similar clients had in small commercial buildings. So we learned to do that. And then as we grew, we wanted to be able to, we learned that scale is pretty important, especially in the multifamily side. We needed to get bigger. So we started doing the bigger multifamily properties and learned how to do it, which was, which was a challenge. You know, it's a different business. Um, so it, it came, it started because of finding those people interesting and the deals interesting. And then um, being multi-divisional in Richmond, we've seen like the cross selling that takes place. Mm -hmm. The guy that owns this, but he also owns that or the guy that owns this, but he refers that. And um, that, 
you know, well, now we manage HOAs and within those HOAs, there's thousands of people that rent their unit within the HOAs. So single family can manage the condo or the townhouse. And um, so there's benefits across, uh, you know, having multiple divisions. I would say like the downside to it is obviously lack of focus, right? If you just do one thing, you get really good at that one thing and you mm -hmm. just do it over and over again, which is probably an easier way to live. But to me, it's less interesting. <laughs> so uh, it's a little bit of both, I would say. What itch does the development side scratch for you personally? Obviously, yeah. I assume it makes money, but in yeah. terms of just enjoyment, self-expression, what do you get out of that side of the business? Yeah, I love that part of the business. It moves so slow is the downside. You have this idea and you want to create the idea and then it takes you three years to do it, right? Uh, as opposed to like you want to do it in a month. But um, yeah, the the creation is the is the biggest part. And I love, I really, really love like the development of neighborhoods, communities, like like uh, identifying a submarket that maybe has some momentum but needs a lot of love to get from here to where it reaches full potential and um, being able to like envision, okay, this could be a coffee shop, that could be an apartment building, this could be whatever, um, and sensing what the neighborhood needs, uh, what you know, what opportunities are there, but what, what, what you can do to move it forward. It's really cool to see a neighborhood and come back three years later, three years later, three years later, and to see how it evolves over time. And it's usually evolving. The market drives a lot of it, but also it takes developers to, to, to have the vision, to, to have the wherewithal to pull off the deal, but also to the time and, and blood and guts it takes to like get through development deals is, is pretty challenging. So it's, it's really fulfilling when you, you know, you have an idea and you see it happen and then boom, you go to the grand opening. And that's pretty cool. But then you're always kind of drawn to where's the next deal. So I think it fits my personality pretty well. Cause there's always some, challenge around the corner that, uh, to keep me interested. <laughs> and what flavor of development are you doing? We, most of what we've done is historic rehab of urban buildings, like infill stuff in Richmond. Um, we are now doing a large project outside of Richmond uh, in Colonial Beach, Virginia, which is a uh, small river town about an hour and 15 minutes northeast of Richmond on the Potomac River. Um, we're doing a series of developments there. Um, and it's a place where my family will have a river house there and it's got a cool little downtown golf cart community. So we are doing 12, we're buying 12 parcels from the town and we're doing townhouses, condos, office, retail, small hotel, hopefully at the end. Um, and so that's been most of what we're doing. Like in Richmond now we're finding like these small to midsize value add deals and we're finding ground up construction, like multifam deals. Um, it's getting harder and harder in Richmond. Richmond's growing so fast out-of-town money is now all over Richmond. It wasn't 10 years ago. It was just local guys doing local deals, you know, smaller deals. Now, Richmond's a boom town. There's a lot of boom towns, and it's not just Richmond. You know, there's a lot of boom towns bigger than Richmond, like a Nashville, for example. But uh, Richmond per capita is just seeing a ton of investment from New York, from Israel, from, you know, California investors, from all, all over uh, D.C. And so land's getting more expensive. Multifam is going through the roof. Um, and so... Um, it's getting harder and harder to find deals. So we're, we are always uh, every six months seems like we're pivoting because we were doing this kind of deal. That deal's not around anymore. So we have to pivot really quickly to do something similar. And so we're just finding those little pockets of opportunity. So how many deals, how many projects, concurrent projects might you have going on? Well, in a year, like four to six, something like that. You know, if it's a big one, maybe we just do like two or three. If they're larger, if they're smaller, you might do, be doing like six at a time. So across all those divisions, what's the total head count roughly? Um, of employees, correct. Um, we are at one hundred like uh, forty today. With the acquisitions and the hopper, we'll be about one hundred seventy-five by January. So, in terms of who you interface with at that size mm -hmm. and scale, where does your time go specifically, relationally, conversationally? Who are mm -hmm. you interfacing with, and and how are you managing at that level? Yeah, it's it's slowly changing. Um, it's always kind of being refined. But the simplest way to explain it, on development, I have a head of the development company. Um, I spend a lot of time with him. I'll see him every day, you know, some you know, from one to three hours a day, probably either our weekly kind of regular one-to-one -one meeting, but it might be also deal related kind of time sensitive stuff. So we're always talking. Um, and on the property management side, I'm a COO and then the people that report to him, the department heads plus HR, um, and accounting report roll up to him. So I'll meet with him once a week. I'll meet with him and all his direct reports, uh, once or twice a week. And we're slowly handing off. I used to meet with all of those folks every week individually, you know, like even nine months ago I was doing that. And and so we're trying to hand off more of those duties to him if it's more tactical and if it's more strategic, uh, then, you know, I'll be there for that. We're trying, it, we're working through it. Let's talk about that COO mm -hmm. role, COO, GM, director of ops. There's yeah. a lot of different flavors yeah. in that seat. Uh, what exactly were you looking for when you made that hire? 
Yeah, it's tough. So we thought long and hard about that hire, and we could have gone a different route. Like uh, I'm in, a, I'm in a peer group, like a CEO peer group in Richmond, and all, everybody there at the time advised me. And uh, my main problem then was I needed to upgrade a, my accounting seat from like an accounting manager to like to a controller or like a director of finance somewhere in that spot. They all told me to hire that person, but I, it, I had the accounting issue, but I also had this time issue where I want to spend more time in development. And so I, I said, okay, I want to hire someone who like I, effectively I can hand the keys off of the management company and say, here you go, you run it. And, I'll, and I, I want to build it so that I, I could go away for a year and the management company still runs. I don't go away for a year, but you know, hypothetically I could. So he, you know, we filed the traction model. So I'm the visionary, he's the integrator, like I formation there. And then all the department heads, accounting and um, uh, HR roll up to him. Um, so I wanted, you know, he works with the department heads to, uh, build a budget for their division. He works with HR, um, and then he the controller rolls up to him. So like you know he we just hired this controller though, so he had multiple accountants reporting to him now. It's just a controller that reports to him, and all the other accountants roll up to roll up to her. Um, so I wanted someone who had probably bigger company experience, more like corporate America experience than like small business, because mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. I've never done what we're getting ready to do. I want someone who's kind of seen it at scale, um, what it looks like, what it feels like, and so he his background is at the Fed. And a large and major insurance company in Richmond that uh, I was very familiar with. Um, so he's, you know, he had some small business experience, but most of his experience is corporate America, larger, you know, larger, just working more sophisticated systems um, than what we have as a small company. But it's tough. I think, you know, the, if I always talk with Matthew Whitaker and my my property management peer group, my mastermind group about a thing called no man's land, where you're trying to go from a small to a big company, and it's really painful to get from here to there because you start having all these needs that you can't quite afford, right? You need, mm-hmm. a, like, you need a mm-hmm. head of marketing. You mm-hmm. need a head of sales. You need a, a CFO, a COO. You need all these things, but you can't hire all of them at once because you can't afford it. So what you do is, you like, you, like, what is, like, the biggest problem you have? And maybe you, you spend a little bit more on that one seat now, mm-hmm. and that buys you six months, right? Mm-hmm. But then something else becomes, like, going up to the bottleneck, right, becoming the problem. They're like, okay, let's – that's the next thing we got to do, we think. So let's plan in six months. If we keep growing, we're going to hire that person. Uh, but then in six months, something might change. And we're like, you know what? Let's pivot and let, instead of hiring a more expensive HR person, maybe you hire the more expensive marketing person or whatever. You make, you're always making those kind of trade offs, it seems that. And then the second you hire that higher caliber person, you start realizing, holy crap, we've really outgrown this other person mm-hmm. now. Because you can raise the bar. Yeah. Yeah. So it's painful, you know, because like uh, it can be good, it can be very, it can be really good. Because um, you get a really, really high quality person in that seat, you see how easy your life becomes in that particular category. But you also start outgrowing people that might have been with you one, three, five, ten years, right? Who were really good at you know when we were a five person company, but they're not as not as good in that seat when we're a hundred person company. Um, and those relationships are really tough, you know, to because uh, uh, you have to be honest with them, and then some of the things you're honest about are painful for them because they want to be part of this team, and so they either have to grow, mm-hmm. they have to be demoted. Or they have to leave, right? Those are really the only three um, options, and uh, it's you know all those options are tough. It seems like. Yeah. So that last option of them leaving is probably the, the most obvious and straightforward. Mm-hmm. Have you ever have you had a successful demotion where somebody was still happy and you're able to work afterwards? I would say we've had some success, successful demotions over time. That the but it takes time and it takes a unique person to be able to do it. Um, the, you know, really, it, it's a person that really believes in the company and the culture and the people, and they want to be part of it. Um, it takes a pretty like introspective person that can recognize, hey, I don't have that skill. Maybe I can get it one day. I don't have it now, um, but it's still painful. Just like just because they know it's the right thing to do for the company, it still hurts. And so we have done it a couple of times, yes. But uh, it's I say I would say that's the exception though. It's it's normally the people. You know, let's say of your original ten people at the company, we still have uh, maybe three of them, um, but the other seven, you know, have moved on to other things, and that was probably the right thing to do. What metaphor do you relate the company to? A family or a sports team? Um, I've heard this question, and um, you know, uh, it's I would argue it's probably it's probably evolving from a family to a sports team, and um, you still have some components that makes it feel like a family, but you know. Richard Seymour gets old, Belichick's going to cut him, you know? That's just a fact of life, and that's what Belichick has to do. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and because uh, and I, I think 
because the, the business isn't a charity. It's not a nonprofit. And if you're not doing it right, someone will eat your lunch and put you out of business. And that's always an option. That's still an option, right? It's for you. You could go to business next year. I could go to business next year if somebody beats us. And so, and nobody wins then, right? And so I think you have to make those tough decisions. We've gotten better at it over time. It's not my, it's not my strong suit, but I would say I'm getting better at it. And like, that is some of the stuff that I delegate to my COO, man, is those tough conversations. HR. Those, those, you know, HR, those tough uh, you know, pips that we, you know, performance improvement plans, mm-hmm. the tough uh, demotions, the tough firings. Like, um, I, I certainly am not good at that, and I don't. You know, I'll probably never be great at it, but I've learned that it, it has to happen. So that distance that you have on that specific area, mm-hmm. that means that you're not doing something you're not great at. Do you also feel that allows you to be a bit more objective because you can divorce the decision from the emotional thought of actually executing on whatever needs to be done? Yeah, and I think that comes with time and scale and just experience, like uh like I was just having this conversation an hour ago, like a, literally even a year ago, my CEO would come to me and say, we got to put this person on the pip. And if they don't come off it, we're gonna have to fire them. And I would like, I would say, Oh no, 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 no. That's, that's Joe. Right. You know, that's to you. It's just a, like a, a cog in the wheel, but that's Joe. I've known Joe forever. Right. And then a, after just a year more, like now the conversation is we got to put them on a pip. We got to fire Joe. And I'll say, okay, I understand. <laughs> and so that's, that's just in a year. That's a lot of evolution <laughs> of our organization of how we, attack problems and try to fix them faster. Do you believe in pips? Uh, there's a very widely differing views, everything from it's the right thing to do, mm-hmm. give them a chance to you're dragging out the inevitable, take the time that was going to be on the pip and just give them severance for that period of time and, and make yeah. it, make it a softer landing. Um, so I, I will say this, I, it's not like I haven't read a thousand HR books and like human behavior books to have a really good uh, opinion on it. Uh, my gut tells me it works about two out of 10 times. But I have seen it work. Um, and some people, maybe they're going through a tough stretch in their life. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they just needed to hear it. Maybe, I don't know. I don't know what, in like, some, some, we've had some really good people come off of pips. And I'm like, I'm really glad we didn't fire that person. Um, but normally it's the beginning of the end. Is uh, But in legally and HR wise, it's probably proper to give them the time and then, but like set the deadline, set the goal that has to be reached and then, and then move forward. It definitely makes it easier to check off some HR boxes going mm-hmm. that route. Duke, what do people at the company need to hear from you as the leader with these diverging interests? Yeah. What is the critical contribution in terms of comms and culture mm-hmm. that you're never going to give up? Yes, that's a good question too. And it's something that I think right now, that's kind of the one thing that I think I'm not doing as well in the last six months that I need to do better at the next six months is um, is the uh, the storytelling, the vision, the um, Making sure everybody understands, because you know, again, we used to be like seven people in a room. We talked every day. Everybody knew what we were doing. Now we're, you know, we're of the of 130 people. Half of them work in the corporate office. Other people work somewhere else, a mm-hmm. property, a different market, whatever. Um, you know, we've got Zoom, and that's great. Uh, we've gotten obviously every company's got better at communicating over Zoom because we've had to the last year and a half. But I'm kind of glad we have it now, just being in different markets. It's like it's a you know, it can help be a, a good tool when you're not uh, in front of the person physically. But um, I think what the company needs is to understand like way more often than I'm doing it now, where we're going, um, what's, what it's going to take to get there, what has to change to get there, uh, what it means to them. Um, I think that like I've gotten so busy on the development side that I probably, I probably haven't done as good a job the last six months and we've had a lot of new people, you know, like now with new with acquisitions and we probably have, uh, you know, 60 people at the company that weren't here January 1, right, that are here now through acquisition or just as a new hire. And so I think we have to really get better at the onboarding process um, and then not just the like the legal HR, accounting, payroll type stuff, but like the indoctrination of the culture. Um, I thought we were doing a pretty good job of that in person. And then when COVID thrown us for a loop where we didn't get together physically for these onboardings for like nine months, we're starting to do it now. But not everybody can come because some, some of them are in Florida, some are in Northern Virginia. Um, so that that's going to be a challenge for me, I, and I haven't quite figured it out yet. You know, I have peers that I go to to ask how they're doing it. You know, my mastermind group is a good example of how they do onboarding and how they just do indoctrination of culture in, in, in multiple markets. But I, I, I'm I'm not great at it yet. We're as an organization, we're not good at it yet, and I think that has to change in the next six months for sure. I appreciate the candid answer. Duke, have you ever reflected on the company name that you chose? Have you been all in (laughs) on that name from day one? Have you ever rethink it, rethought it? Yeah. Having had any misgivings about having that connection to you specifically? Yeah. Yeah. So it's funny. The reason I did it because, um, so my grandfather 
had a company called Dodson Security, and I thought it was the coolest thing. You see the car go. I mean, it was a small business. He had like seven employees, right? But I, I had tremendous pride. Yeah, uh, I, almost, I almost get choked up like saying it, like seeing that, right? And then my dad was a State Farm agent. He had the name Dennis K. Dodson on the sign, State Farm agency on the sign, and so I thought that was cool. And I really didn't even consider having a name like Twitter or Flickr or you know, you know, Evernest or you know, my, like my buddy. Uh, it never crossed my mind. I never, but I never assumed it would get this big either. I never. As a, I mean, I honestly thought, you know, in my history, I played poker for a living mm-hmm. and I got engaged and I didn't want to gamble as my only source of income. Uh, but I always thought I would still play a lot of poker. So my goal at the time was maybe get to two to 10 employees, have this thing run, spit out a salary that I could eat, right? And then I could go play poker. I wouldn't have the stress of like living and dying with the outcomes of the, of the, the results that day. And so I never thought about it getting that big, right? And so now in Richmond, you, you see the signs everywhere, like, like now I have some misgivings about naming it my last name really for my kids' sake. So the opposite of the effect, like I'm afraid they're going to have some negative effects um, because like what people might assume about them um, because of the name being everywhere. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so honestly, if I did it again, I think I would call it something different. I'm not going to change it now. But, no, this uh, is too, too 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 far too far down the road. Yeah, I have no. I mean, maybe we do a rebrand one day. But honestly, it'll come. You know, one day we'll exit one day, and that person will change the name, and that's fine. Like, uh, that that might happen. But we have we have we've never talked about rebranding it. It's got a pretty like in our local market, it's got a pretty good brand reputation. Like when people say it, it's it's a good thing. You know, it's a good connotation. So it's good for now. But like if you know, like we've knock on wood, we've done a really good job avoiding like the bad publicity. Like. You know the, the channel twelve at your door. We've we've avoided that for the most part over the years. I've never gotten legal trouble or anything, which is great. But at, at some time, something's going to happen, right? Some the building's going to burn down. Like a, something will happen, and then that name might be get thrown around like in a negative light. Um, and that's when you do the rebrand then. <laughs> yeah, yes, <laughs> good. Yes, that's a great idea. Yes, yeah, sold. Yeah. So you mentioned seeing the name Dodson from your family, yeah. from your dad and your grandpa, yeah. on these various signs. In terms of your identity as an entrepreneur, yeah. how you get here, my personal experience was such that I was given permission to be an entrepreneur by my stepdad. And when I yeah. mean permission, I mean on the menu of life choices. Yeah. Without my stepdad in my life, it wouldn't have been there. But because he was there, it wasn't a big thing. It was just like, oh, yeah, that's an option. I'm definitely going to do that. Because he was one? Because he was an entrepreneur. And he was... You know, you said your dad was an insurance agent. My dad was was a financial planner, so okay. it wasn't like a big organization. But mm-hmm. I, the, there's no conflate. You conflate being a salesperson and an entrepreneur when mm-hmm. you're 12, and so that was just kind of what I picked. Did you carry some identity from your from your dad and your grandpa? Mm-hmm. Um, did you always want to be an entrepreneur? What What's that kind of like mental baggage like for you? Yeah, I'd say definitely like seeing my dad. You know, he you know State Farm. He didn't. You don't own the business, but he he ran his office. No one could tell him when to come and go. His autonomy, yeah, complete autonomy. So he ran. He worked really hard Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. He took a half day off. Friday, he didn't work. He'd play golf. He'd travel. We'd go to a tech football game, whatever. So, uh, and then like I would see his friends. We get to Blacksburg for a tech game on Friday afternoon. His friends would be scrambling to get there by Saturday because they had to work till five o'clock on Friday. And I, I I remember like thinking like God, that's a grown man, and he can't decide when to come and go. That to me just sounded awful. You know what I mean? So like the freedom. You know, I probably I probably work more than most of my peers, my friends that work forty hour jobs, but I choose when it is, and mm-hmm. that to me that's that's the ultimate, really. But I, yeah, I watched my grandfather, and my, you know, and then my my mom's side, my I had uncles who were dairy farmers, and um, had one of my uncles had a greenhouses in his backyard. He built one, then he ended up building like fourteen greenhouses. He he he's still alive, but he'll die a millionaire uh, from you know building things with his you know, hands and growing things mm. with his hands, and you know he was. Complete control, but he got up at three thirty in the morning. But he wanted to, mm-hmm. you know, to go uh, work in his backyard. Um, I think I already forgot the question. What was the question? The question was just really yeah. what kind of identity did you have around entrepreneurship yeah, yeah. that brought you into it? Yeah, so I think it was. It started there. It's like how do I want my my day to be, my week to be, and that's really when I was a kid would think about okay, what I'm going to do when I grow up. But it had to start with that. It's like I want to control whatever it is, and then also it had to have the ability to have some upside. You know, like. Like I, I did a lot of math exercises when I was in high school and college. I would say, okay, if I make this much money, I save ten percent of it. I put it in a four one k. It grows this much a year, mm. and what would it get to? And I'm like, that's like that's cool, but it, to me, that wasn't. Um, I wasn't excited about working for forty years to to maybe do that. Right? I wanted to have the ability to upset. You know, and I think I'd be, I would be, I would find a way to be happy in life if I wasn't really successful or rich or whatever. But um, I, the potential for it had to be there. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> the possibility, yeah. the thrill of the chase. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, how do you think about the satiation that success brings, right? Yeah. Early on, I think about 
what I was engaged in. And there was an element of survival that was really pure and really <laughs> motivating. Cause yeah. I could say, babe, I'm it's, it's 10 PM and I'm right. going to go do more work because I have to, right. That was super clear. Yeah. I don't have the luxury of saying that anymore. Right. My wife knows that would be a big fat lie for right. me to say, I have to do this right, right now. And so then right. there's a different mindset of, right. Well, if I don't have to, mm-hmm. I guess I just want to. And what does that mean? What does it mean to want to keep going and to have more? Right. Is it good? Is it bad? Is it just about the money? Is it about helping people? Right. How do you think in your own life about this kind of growing ambition that in some ways is satisfying, but in some ways it's never quite satisfying. It just keeps going and going. See, that's a great question. I never had asked me that. It's something I think about a lot lately because like, yeah, the thrill of, uh, you know, fighting to survive that those first, I remember three and a half years, like I remember being three years in the business and to the outward world looked like maybe it looked like I was a success, but I remember thinking, I still don't know if I can make payroll next, next week. And I don't know if this is ever going to work. I remember Mm -hmm. thinking, is this actually going to work? Am I doing it wrong? Like, did I set a, of a business model that's never going to get there. I'm going to have to keep working these 16-hour days, like seven days a week. Um, but so I had that stress, but also like, you know, whether it's a thrill or just the survival, adrenaline, whatever it was. I mean, like I looked up and three and a half years have gone by and I, I did enjoy it, even though it was stressful. Um, and it may have been my favorite part of the last 14 years. Mm-hmm. Three, three, as far as just that, not, 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 I'm not mm-hmm. saying I'm not happy now. That's great. Like, no, I hear but, you, bro. But that part of the you. business might have been my favorite. Yeah. Um, and then to your point, yeah, it was easier to grind and grind and grind when I had to. But now if I'm grinding, my, my, my wife also knows you don't really have to be at the office till seven tonight. You know, like you could be home for dinner. And she knows that. And it's true. Right. And so it's really now trying to figure out, OK, this last 14 years has been about that survival growth, getting to this point. What's the next five, 10, 20 look like? And I'm, I'm, I'm sorting through that right now. I don't know. Like, so um, I. You know, part of me has this really big desire. I think it's mostly ego, if, if I'm being honest, that I want to grow this really big thing, right? Mm-hmm. I want to be like, I want to be, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, Jeffrey Bezos. I want to be like that guy in property management. And mm-hmm. part of me doesn't. Part of me um, it's like, you know what? Like, why can't I live a more simple life where I work three and a half days with my dad? I play a little golf, play a little tennis. I'm, I'm you know, exercise. I'm healthy. Be with the kids. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I have those two creatures inside of me and they're kind of fighting right now mm-hmm. and, and i'm trying to figure it out like for me to start something i remember like three four five years in i remember thinking okay i'll grow this one day, i'll sell it i'll take two months off and mm-hmm. then i'll start something new mm-hmm. and i'll be possessed to start something new and i you know I, real estate development is pretty intriguing and growing property management is pretty exciting but i'm not possessed by that next idea or the next thing like i was when i when i started it and I, maybe it'll happen again maybe i'll have this other you know this other kind of uh, rebirth of that of that demon, <laughs> or maybe I won't. I don't know. And so I'm trying to keep my options open uh, in case one of those creatures wins. I'm not sure. I'm not sure which of those creatures is going to win. So I think right now we're keeping the options open for both of them to have a chance. <laughs> I can definitely relate to that, and I also really I like the idea, just the honesty about following the muse. Yeah, we were talking about that before we started rolling, but I mentioned that a lot of folks are waiting to clear the decks to give themselves permission to do some new project, right? I'm mm-hmm. going to get everything organized. I'm going to get it just right. I'm going to get it humming. And then I'll have this free time where I can go start X, Y, Z. Right. I don't know anything about that. Never yeah. done that. And I've yeah. done a lot of things. Never done that. What I right. have done is just starting. And just, just starting it anyway. Because yeah. I, I just can't not. Right. I can't not. And so I just dive in and it causes some problems. And the people you leave behind are kind of complaining a bit. And there are some yeah. fires. Yeah. But what I find is that by following the muse, it allows me to increase the probability that I'm going to show up at my best on something mm-hmm. I'm really passionate about. Mm-hmm. And I'm willing to bet on myself. Mm-hmm. The entrepreneurial act in large part is betting on yourself. Right. Most of most entrepreneurial activity is day-to-day stuff that a competent operator can do. Mm-hmm. The creative act at the beginning, the inception and the willingness to act on an idea with no reasonable or rational basis that it's actually going to work out. Mm-hmm. To me, that's the purity of entrepreneurship. That's right. what I kind of, that's what I crave and is really addicting. Right. What is that like for you? Well, I have to ask you a question first before you, before you move on. Cause so, yeah. So how do you balance that when you know in your heart of hearts, if you want to start this new thing and you know, if you had cleared the decks you had all your energy and focus is this thing would do better, right? You know, it would do better and you can do it, but you're also getting dragged by this other stuff. So you're going to do it, but it probably won't be as awesome as it could be. If you, if you had cleared the decks and you've, you've made promises on this side to these people, like you mentioned, like you referenced, right? You just hired somebody mm-hmm. with the intent. Hey, come here. We're going to grow. We're going to be awesome. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, Jordan's over here doing this. Right. Mm-hmm. So like, how, yeah, it's like, how do you balance all that in your, in your brain? 
Yeah, I mean, you definitely want to be cognizant of the promises that you're making, mm-hmm. explicit and implicit. I remember early on having conversations with a business partner, and the, the, one of the, the early mistakes that I made was not being willing to have a direct enough conversation about what I really wanted to do. Are you solo or did you have any partners? Um, yeah, I've you, gotten minority partners, but like I, I didn't, they weren't there. To, you the started beginning. by yourself, yeah. okay. Yeah. So I don't know how relatable this is, but early on, I realized I wanted to do other stuff mm-hmm. instead of having a, and, and I could, I could tell it was almost perceived as a little bit of a betrayal. Mm-hmm. Like, Hey man, I thought we were like going to focus on this one. I'm like, right. at some point, you know, this is a venture and I want to do other things. Mm-hmm. And instead of being really clear in that communication, I ended up dragging that person into some other ventures that they mm-hmm. didn't necessarily want to be in. Right. And, um, that was dramatically worse than me just going to them and saying, hey, I know it may not be ideal for you, but I've got some other stuff I want to do. And you may view that as a net negative Mm -hmm. in the near term. But what I promise you is going to be a dramatically worse outcome is for me to stay here (laughs) and get deeply unhappy and (laughs) start resenting and loathing you. Yeah. Okay. And that, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I know back to your question. Sorry. What was your question? Do you remember? I don't. Okay. But I've got another one for you. Okay, good. Moving forward, when you think about the opportunity that you're creating Mm -hmm. for your staff, for your team, for your community, what what would you do for free? This is what I think about. Mm -hmm. I'm going to make money. It's it's pretty darn enjoyable. At the same time, there's some aspects of my work that are so enjoyable. I think, you know, I might do that for free. Mm -hmm. What are the things, the aspects of what you're doing day to day right now that you just feel like a deep sense of fulfillment, satisfaction, connection to? Yeah, that would probably be like on the real estate development side, like the creation, like the development side, like I, I would do that for free and, and I have at times. And sometimes like I the first seven or eight deals I did, um, like I didn't charge a development fee or an acquisition fee and I didn't even know you could. Right? I, I was like, oh, this is so fun, I would do it for free. And then I heard about, there's a thing called a development fee or an acquisition fee, I'm like what's that? I was like, well, you can get paid at the front end to do this and do it. Like, so, uh, like there's, you know, my, the guy that runs my development team now, like he, you know, we battle sometimes because he's fighting, he's running that business. That's his, you know, and he wants to fatten our fees. And, and I'm like, well, if something, if we have to do something to make this deal work, I'm cutting my fee. I'm not hurting an investor and I'm not like the GC has to make his money. You know, some of it you can't cut. So I was like, I would do it for free. And I was like, you're gonna have to understand that. <laughs> like, like we're going to develop these 12 parcels in this town. Some of the parcels will kill it. Some we won't do as great, but it's us. that has to get hurt. Not the investor. The investor always has to make their money because they won't be there for the next time. Right. If they don't. So, um, yeah, so I would definitely would develop like neighborhoods, like, like towns, mar- sub markets, like that to me is really uh, intoxicating. And then the, uh, within property management, um, like seeing people like progress and grow and like, you know, when we, grow and somebody who's been there in three different roles gets a promotion and you see like the pride in their face like they're how happy they are and how loyal they are to the company now because they've we've been with them on this journey we've helped them grow like that piece like the the human the human part mm. of property management mm. i still uh i'm pretty big fan of amen man yeah. i couldn't agree more that's one of the most yeah. satisfying moments to see something in someone else that maybe even they don't fully yeah. see or appreciate and to call that forth yeah yeah deeply yeah. satisfying yeah i agree that's what it's all about. Like that's and that's when like I'm fearful as you get bigger and bigger and you're like, you know, uh, I you can only have so many relationships, you know, so many people you can be c- close with, and then the people, a lot of people we hire now, like I'll meet them once, maybe twice, but I'll, I won't have a relationship with them, and that that kind of bums me out. Like it's to mm. me, it's almost like kind of like what's the point? Like, uh, and so you still have your core group you work with every day, and that's cool, but uh, I, I do miss the days when like it was seven of us in a room and you knew everybody, you knew their kids' names, you know, you knew their mm. career goals and what's mm-hmm. important to them and all that. Versus hiring someone, and then there's people that hire, they quit, and mm-hmm. we, or fire them, and I don't, I don't, I've never built a relationship with them, and that, and that's kind of, that's just kind of weird for me still. I could see that. What's your take on BizDev, Duke? Mm-hmm. BizDev is one of those. It, it gets back to that entrepreneurial vision of mm-hmm. the probability of most BizDev. Somebody approaches you with an idea, they want to collab, yeah. can I take you out to lunch? My experience, 99% of the time, this is going nowhere. The 1% Mm -hmm. that it does go somewhere, it could be really, really great. As your career has progressed, as you're touching more people, more things, Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's more people that have an interest in having a half hour of your time. Mm -hmm. How do you filter and sift through potential new opportunities knowing that you've already got so much going on? Yeah, um, on the biz dev side, we have never done a lot of like the take people to golf and take people to 
things like in uh, kind of biz dev, it's it's been more of a hyper focus on um, on just understanding what they want, building this thing that's going to give them a good experience over and over again, and it will sell itself. And like the, like and so um, we you know we've got. I don't really hang out with clients unless I like them anyway. And, and I, you know what I mean? I've got some clients to hang out with, not that many, honestly, like some I play golf with or whatever, but they were friends before and they're gonna be friends after if they, you know, and like, um, so, um, yeah, I mean, like I, I don't get pulled that much. There are clients that want to, you know, they want to pick my brain about the market and whatever we'll, we'll do that. Okay. And I do enjoy that. Like the people that are curious, whether they have one unit or a thousand units, they're interesting to me if they're coming and asking questions about how do I do this? How, how, you know, what do you think about this? Like those people are really interesting, even if they're just you know just starting, they're pretty interesting to me. So I don't I don't mind spending the time with those folks to go to lunch or coffee, or whatever. Where where do you fall on the spectrum of interest in having acquisition conversations? This is related to biz dev, right? Mm-hmm. There's plenty of acquirers. I'm sure you get emails, solicitations, mm-hmm. phone calls, etc. Mm-hmm. Do you bother to take those calls? What, what what's the um, the basic kind of profile of what you would need to hear in a conversation to be even interested in talking to Johnny come lately, a large acquirer that wants to yeah. talk about buying your shop. So I talk to all of them and I tell them I'm probably not going to sell ever, but you're still willing to have the conversation. Yeah, I do a, because again, it's interesting to me what they're doing and how they're going to approach it and why they think it's going to work. Right. Like we talk to all of them, you know, pure in mind and home river and Matthew, talk to Matthew all the time. He's, Ran his warehouse back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Cause they all approach it differently. And uh, I, I want to hear, you know, what they're trying to accomplish, how think, they think you're going to do it, why they think this way is going to work, whatever. So that's interesting to me. Um, and then you never know. I, I may sell one day, right? Like, uh, I don't have any desire to do it now, but we could. Like, we may sell one piece of the business one day, may sell the whole thing one day. Um, and it's really good to know who the, you know, the people, the right players are that we want to talk to if and when that time comes. And I think it's you have to kind of keep your finger on the pulse because like those people aren't a threat to us now, but they will be one day, and it's it's good to understand when you know how fast that day is approaching. They will be because of your size and scale growing, or because you think they're going to come so dominant they're going to push down and crowd out the lower end of the market. That yeah, the second one. I, I think um, again, I don't see it now, but if they can continue to automate more things than us, they can do it for cheaper than us, and they keep getting big enough where. Like you see, like in most businesses, the sm- like property management probably might be end up end up being the greatest example. You have like the really small guy thrives because of that close personal contact and whatever, and then the really big guy thrives. Everybody else in the middle kind of gets squeezed, Compressed. you know. So, um, and that could likely happen to us one day. I mean, I think it's probably fifteen years out, maybe something like that. But um, so we have to be, you know, we have to just keep our finger on the pulse. Um, and again, you know, again, like there's times where I need cash for a development deal. And I think, man, what if I just sold one of these divisions? <laughs> what, how, what would my life be like then? And we've always said no, but it's, it's good to know. Like we, all the guys we talked to are all the single family shops, the ones that are here at this conference. But, you know, we, we get emails from multifamily people, HOA. I'm getting like three emails a week now from HOA, like private equity backed roll ups. But I've never talked to them. So I'm going to talk to one of them next week just to hear them out and just understand how they're doing it. No, what about the flip side of that conversation when you're making acquisitions? Is yeah. this a long sales cycle, a long nurture, highly relational? Is this a mailer campaign? Mm-hmm. Do they come to you? You come to them? How are, how are your acquisitions coming to be? We have some of these mailer, like email systems built and physical mail systems built. To my knowledge, I don't think they've actually ever resulted in an acquisition, uh, but they might one day. Like we're, So we, we do it. It's cheap and easy. It's almost free, so we, we do it. Um, most of them have been relationship-based. I think, I guess... I guess all of them have. Um, in fact, the company we just bought, it's not public yet. It's in Northern Virginia. That deal came from this guy. You, you, I'm sure you get the emails too. These emails like, how many, I'm an MBA from North Carolina. I want to buy a company, but between these metrics, can I talk to you? Yeah, you get those emails. Totally, I don't yeah. understand. Those never seem to work. But I got an email from this guy. Something about his email was different and interesting. I was like, hey, let me just talk to this guy. I want to hear him out. And so I talked to him and he wanted to buy our company. I was like, I'm not selling, but I just, you know, you're a nice guy. Stay in touch. You never know one day. And then he ended up finding a company in Northern Virginia, bought it. Within a month, he realized. I've made a huge mistake. Yeah, what am I doing? Didn't know, he just like, I just don't like this. So he called me and like, if I hadn't taken that call, you know, he never, he wouldn't have ever called me, but he called me. He's like, I want to sell this pretty quick. Can you help? Wow. And I was like, yeah. And I was like, I can do that. So um, that's how that came to be. 
That's wild. Yeah, but most of our most of our relationships like Narpan people and or Virginia people that we know through local networking. You know, I do get those emails, and what I make up about that is that they're following the buy rather than build philosophy, mm-hmm. which is really intriguing to me. Yeah, you know, if you could go back and do it again, do you start at zero? Do you start at at buying three hundred doors? Right. Obviously, there's a little bit of luxury that's kind of implicit in that premise to be able to mm-hmm. have the money and the financing, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you were doing it over again, or if you were advising somebody early do you think that that buy rather than build philosophy is attractive or do you think you would slog it out again um that's a really good question i would probably if you had all these options out there i would probably start from scratch but have another source of income that existed so i couldn't i'd have to pay myself for the first year or two because i think that's the most the best way do it starting from scratch you learn so much about your customer about every process like what works with like you just learn so much when you're dealing with the resident, you're dealing with the owner, you're dealing with the vendor. Like, like I, I couldn't, like, with that guy, the guy in Northern Virginia who bought that company, like, he, he didn't have any of those experiences. Like, so, like, how how can he really help? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and, like, my COO didn't have, doesn't have any of those experiences, but he has big company experience, and then he has me and other people telling him, well, we do it this way because of this, we do it this way because of that, and some of those things. He's like, okay, he has to, like, kind of trust us that it still needs to be that way uh, because of the customer experience, whatever. So, like I, like I learned so much by just doing it, you know, showing the property, dealing with the maintenance work order mm. when it came in on a Sunday afternoon. Like you just learn so much by doing it. It's visceral firsthand. Yeah. yeah. I read a Harvard study that communicated that people that think that their boss can do their job better than they can are more satisfied in their roles, mm-hmm. which is an interesting thought. You know, yeah. if you're, if your subordinates feel like that you actually know what's up, and yeah. you've worked these jobs and you've done yeah. these things, I think there is a certain kind of connection, respect, and rapport that's built in there. Yeah, definitely. Let's talk about your your talent pipeline. Where are you mm-hmm. pulling talent from? What is the process? How much mm-hmm. labor are you are you investing in the HR and recruiting function at the size and scale? I'm guessing there's more maturity, but tell me about mm-hmm. that aspect of the business. Yeah, so for our current staff size, now we have one and a half uh, HR people. And really there's another person that kind of, maybe you could call it two and a half. Um, she does some other things, but she's technically under the HR umbrella. Um, so the process works pretty well. Like I, I think, um, you know, we, like we have like the mechanics of the process is really fine tuned as far as how you create a job rec, how you post it, how you phone screen, how you do the next round of interviews, like the questions you ask, behavioral questions around, um, culture and all that, you know, all that stuff's in there and that's really good. And I think we have a natural employment branding that's just organic from people talking good about us in the marketplace. But I think the next level is like is really ramping up the employment branding to the point where like people are are like, I want to work with you. You know what I mean? And we have some of that. It happens sometimes, right? And those are like that's like the best answer we get in an interview is I I want to work at Dotson Property Management because this is what I've heard about the company and mm. that's the culture I like. Mm-hmm. I want to be part of that. That's like the best in- pull. Yeah, yeah. So like I want more of that versus us. Like it's really hard in the maintenance world, for example, because a lot of maintenance techs think it's it's a commodity. You know, I can work there. I can work there. How much my paycheck? Do I like my boss? That's that's you know that's pretty much it. Um, but I would like I would love to for the whole world to think okay, if you want to be a maintenance professional in uh, in Virginia, you need to work at Dotson Property Management, and here's why: career upside education, growth, mentoring. Like I, I think we need to do all those things a little better and we need to talk about it in the marketplace different, you know, different ways. You know, you're using a term that many would perceive as somewhat of an oxymoron, a maintenance professional. Yeah. What does that mean when you say a professional, a career in a maintenance paradigm? If it's not a guy swinging a hammer, if this, yeah. if this is going somewhere, yeah. what is that? Yeah, so like I... I have never swung a hammer, like so. That's one of the jobs that I can't, you know, know more than the people that work for us, right? Sure. Uh, so um, I probably miss, uh, I miss appreciate underappreciated what what a good maintenance professional can do for an organization, and and how there's way more jobs out there than there are people, and that you know employment branding on that part of the business is by far the most important. And so like now we've gone from like kind of underappreciating maintenance professionals to celebrating them. Because we've seen what good ones look like and how powerful they can be, um, and like, I, I would, th- I think we're gonna have an extreme labor shortage in that part of the world over the next ten years, and so we've got to get the best people. and We got to keep them. A lot of our properties, our multifamily properties, the head maintenance person at that property makes more than the head property manager, and that's the property manager person went to college. You know, might have a designation or mm-hmm. two, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Maintenance guy probably didn't go to college. 
but he uh, he or she can make more than the property manager because of supply and demand. We've got guys that made three years ago made eighteen bucks an hour, are making twenty eight now. We've guys that are they're making thirty five dollars an hour and up. And uh, those are careers. You can you can feed families off of those careers. How do you know if it's working with maintenance? Part of the story that I make up or that I hear with maintenance mm-hmm. is that regardless of your best practices, there's just still going to be a lot of churn. There's just going to mm-hmm. be a lot of turnover. What kind of turnover do you experience on the maintenance side of the business? It's really high compared to the other parts of the business, but it's lower than our peers. Um, I don't know the exact numbers off the top of my head, but I know that you know if we have nine job wrecks out like any moment, like right now, I bet you six of them are maintenance and jobs. Right? So we're always... We're always building the pipeline, even if we don't need it, because we'll need it next week, even if we don't need it today. Um, so it's it is a high turnover. Um, uh, there's a lot, there, a lot of poaching takes place. You know, like if Joe, the maintenance supervisor, leaves and goes to another company, he's going to call all six, seven of his guys, and half of them will probably go. You know, because it's that's like the most relationship with that supervisor is probably a little more important than the relationship with the company. I would like to slowly change that over time, but that's that's the truth if we're being honest have you experienced that yourself where somebody left oh yeah and, oh yeah it happens both ways too when we hire new people like who do you bring know your crew with you we'll pay you we'll pay we pay you know we pay 500 dollars for employees for a regular uh employee referral we pay a thousand for maintenance because it's that valuable wow that's yeah. amazing they have to stay like uh 90 and 180 days to get it but any other impact related to labor shortages you know covid supply chain etc mm-hmm. what so much conversation about that, right? When it was mm-hmm. first happening, the amount of conversation that was happening about that was insane. Mm-hmm. In my observation relative to the immediate impact, mm-hmm. what long-term impact are you feeling from the craziness we've been through over the last 24 months? Yeah, I mean, the labor shortage is real, and I think it's a real problem, and I don't know how you fix it. Hopefully politicians do. Maybe they don't. I don't know. But uh, the maintenance side is probably the highest. Um, like accounting is really tough, I've seen. And then uh, – in prop, you know, we we you know, when the Great Resignation started happening across the country, we felt some of it. Again, I don't think we had it as bad as some people, but it was a real thing. Um, I think that like we have a major labor shortage in a lot of categories, and it's got to be addressed somehow. And I don't know how you, I don't, I don't know how you fix it. Um, I mean, some of it's probably immigration related, some of it's education related, you know, but. Um, it, I think it's a major problem that's going to get worse. It's above our pay grade officially, it is, I suppose. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, the the concern that was had early on was that mm-hmm. there's going to be mass delinquencies, people are going to mm-hmm. be stopped paying their rents, et cetera. We've obviously seen a wave of legislation that is broadly considered as definitely not landlord-friendly, mm-hmm. likely not property management-friendly. How do you feel about all of that pending and legislation that's some of which is, is, is on the outswing, some is still pending? Mm-hmm. Do you feel like that is a legitimate threat to the business long term do you have any sensibility that some of that legislation just makes it easier for the cream to rise to the top because Mm -hmm. with more hurdles becomes more of a need for third-party residential property management what's your take on all that um i would say you know i think the rent relief programs worked really well in virginia and it hasn't been a problem i think when they start weaning off uh that that if some evictions will occur and that'd be a problem to our clients and a problem to us i think your last part of the question there about um you know, the more complicated it gets, does it probably help people like us? Probably. Yeah, I think that, um, I think that, like, in our market um, just last week, uh, 29 companies got sued by the state of Virginia um, for, um, basically, someone comes to you and says, do you accept Section 8 vouchers? You used to be able to say no. Now in Virginia, you can't say no. You have to screen them. And then they may not qualify. Like, we have some clients that used to say, I don't want to deal with Section 8 because it's a it's a difficult process. Um, now, legally, you can't say no to that. Um but uh, 29 companies got sued. We didn't, thank God. Not going to work. We do, we do it correctly. We stay on top of the law. But I know that, like, I know that every person in Richmond read that article or saw it, and then they probably thought, "Ooh, man, I probably need a property manager," you know, because I don't know that law. You know what I mean? So it goes back to your point. Yeah, I think the more complicated it gets, the more people need us. Probably, I think that you know, I think we'll be at 10 years from now. We'll have a pretty big threat from the big companies. We'll also have a pretty big threat from the do-it-yourselfers and the um, the, the limited services type property management websites and mm-hmm. i think that will become more of a thing but also you know you're going to have more and more just humans and more units to manage and so i think that will probably stay stay in tune but um uh yeah i think we'll have to see you know they say advantage is always competed away in business mm-hmm. there's always a reversion to the mean so that's yeah. relatable i think that's part of the stimulation of what keeps people engaged in business mm-hmm. with all the complexity that you're facing with the mm-hmm. potentiality that you know something 
bad could happen and you could cash out now, but you don't and you mm-hmm. keep going. Big picture, at the highest level, what do you hope your your legacy might be for your kids as it pertains to all of the effort and the exertion that you placed in the arena of business? Um, yeah, I hope that, you know, I don't think either one of my kids will follow into like work for the business or I don't think either for different reasons, they won't work in the business. Um, I think I hopefully what they will see is that, you know, mainly if you want to be a happy adult, (laughs) figure out, figure out what you like to do, work really hard to push yourself in a career that you can constantly be doing what you like to do. And so it doesn't feel like work. And then you'll, if you do that, you'll probably have some success because you'll be doing what you're you're passionate about and and like you're not a victim to your career you don't mm. just work a nine to five if you choose to work a nine to five because that's what you want to do great but you made that choice and you were probably happier but like you know to, to not have the victim uh mindset that a lot of people have of you know oh my gosh i gotta go to work you know like um i can't imagine i wouldn't want them to work 40 years just you know waiting for retirement so they don't have to do anything like mm. that to me is a pretty miserable way to live and so um, I, I, just, I just hope it's that. I hope it's they, you know, I don't really, again, I don't really, I hope they don't work in the company. Um, uh, and I hope they do something different that they like and that they enjoy and that they don't, uh, you know, that they don't have many regrets as an adult because they didn't take, they didn't follow what they wanted to do and, and do the work necessary to, to have a career that they enjoy. I love that answer, man. <laughs> I do not moralize about entrepreneurship. Yeah. It's so right for me. And yeah. I do not assume that it's right for other people or it's yeah. the universal answer. And so it's not something I'm going to superimpose my kids. Right. I actually do feel somewhat dogmatic that I do mm-hmm. want them to work in or around the business to get exposed to it. I have no insistence or dogma mm-hmm. around them taking over continuity, but I right. do think it's an, it is a really healthy medium to have some level of exposure. And I yeah. think I, I am uniquely positioned to give them a level of access and insight and experiences, not all of which will be pleasant, right? I mean, I think right. about having a 14-year-old cold call. That sounds really valuable to me. I would have <laughs> yeah. benefited from that. Yeah. 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 But I love the answer overall, man. Yeah. Well, I love watching your journey. I'm glad we were able to, to reconnect. And yeah, uh, I know, if nothing else, that the future is going to be bright and exciting. And in large part, it's because of guys like you that are doing cool stuff and maintaining their edge, brother. So appreciate <laughs> everything that you bring to this industry. Well, thanks for having me. You're, you're a very good interviewer. You ask very thought-provoking questions. So that was pretty cool. Pretty cool hour there. So I do it. my best. Yeah. <laughs> Until next time, be well. Yeah, thanks, man. Jordan here asking you, what do you got? What is a question you want to ask me? Can you stump me? Can you throw me something hard, perplexing, vexing, something you feel tied up in knots with? Throw it at me. I'll do my best to try and answer that question, to dissect it, to parse out the nuance and maybe help you get a bit more clarity. I'm looking for questions as the basis for creating content and you're looking for answers as the basis for clarity and wouldn't it be perfect if those two things matched up? Drop a comment, send me me an email, jordanatleadsimple.com. Let's stay in the conversation. Peace.